I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today... More than 70 years have passed. What happened can never be forgotten, I know that, and can never be changed. But over time I learned that I can choose how to respond to the past. I can be miserable, or I can be hopeful. I can be depressed, or I can be happy. We always have that choice, that opportunity for control. I am here. This is now. I have learned to tell myself over and over and over again until panicky feeling begins to ease. That was an excerpt from the book, The Choice, by my guest today, Dr. Edith Eager. This is She Pivots, and I'm your host, Emily Tish sussman In that short clip, Dr. Eager's talking about her experience surviving the Holocaust and her long journey of healing the trauma she endured. She is one of the few remaining survivors of perhaps one of the most gruesome concentration camps, Auschwitz. Dr. E is one of the dwindling number of survivors who can bear firsthand testimony to the horrors of the concentration camps. Her book recounts the hell and trauma that she and other survivors endured during and after the war. And it is a universal message of hope and possibility to all who are trying to free themselves from pain and suffering. Now, at 95, Dr. Eager's story spans decades and contains so many incredible chapters. She's an accomplished mother, author, and clinical psychologist. 
Her story is a deeply inspiring example of what it means to pivot because of something personal. After the trauma she endured, she realized that she needed to face herself and face her emotions that had built up over the years. So over 20 years after she left Auschwitz, Dr. Eager decided to pursue a degree in psychology, graduating at the age of 49. She then went on to receive her PhD in clinical psychology at age 51. She has used her own experiences to help others heal in their traumas while telling her incredible life story. Her story is incredibly complex, and although I'd love to share it in its entirety, it's impossible in just one episode. Still, it is so important to me to preserve her story and hopefully will lead you down a path of discovery, especially given the fact that so many are attempting to erase the Holocaust. The horrors Dr. Eager and millions of others endured cannot be overstated. We are also releasing her episode ahead of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year and celebration. I hope this episode serves as a way to pass along her story to future generations. Her story is truly moving, and I hope you enjoy it. She was born in 1927 in Slovakia and later moved to Hungary with her family. Dr. Eager was the youngest with her two older sisters, Clara and Magda. I was a very lonely child because I had two very talented sisters. Clara played the violin concerto at just five years old, and Magda was a pianist. Clara was a child prodigy in violin, and she was the only Jewish girl accepted at the music academy in Budapest. That was a hard act to follow. When she was already in a camp, her her professor, Waldbar, the name, um, smuggled her out and hid her until the end of the war. And the way I found out that she was alive, when we came from Vienna to Prague, I saw advertisements with a violin that she's giving a concert. When did you still feel like a child? Do you remember what your childhood was like when you still felt like a child? I remember being a little adult rather than a child's child. I don't remember really playing uh, uh, dolls too much. I, I did have a doll, but most of all, I, I think I was prepared to Auschwitz because I was able to use some of the skills when I was alone. I became cross-eyed when I was three years old. Here is how she writes about that experience in her book, The Choice. Since the accident, I turn my head toward the ground when I walk, so that I don't have to see anyone looking at my lopsided face. I haven't yet learned that the problem isn't that my sisters taunt me with a mean song. The problem is that I believe them. I am so convinced of my inferiority that I never introduce myself by name. I never tell people, I am Edie. Still, she found solace in her own art. She loved to dance. I started to do ballet, and I was starting to do acrobatics and gymnastics. 
I was going to be preparing for the Olympics, actually. I understand that you tried out for the Olympic team when you were young. Can you tell us that story? Well, my my teacher came to me one day and told me something that was the most difficult to hear, that I do not qualify for the Olympics because I'm Jewish. So I said to her, I'm not Jewish. Now, of course, it is a lie because all you had to do is go to the city hall when you're born and the, there is a line, a religion, Jewish. My line didn't do me any good. I'd like to take you way back, way back to 1943, when I am a 15-year-old young girl. Despite feeling lonely, Dr. Eager found a deep connection with a young man. It was he who told her that she had beautiful eyes and beautiful hands shortly before they were separated and each taken to concentration camps. She held on to the idea of him and the comfort of knowing that he loved her throughout her time in Auschwitz. She found out years after the war had ended that he had been killed in the camps. When she talks of him now, it is clear that she kept him alive in her mind after all these years. Well, you know, I was always a kind of a hopeless romantic. I had a boyfriend. Imre was his name in Hungarian. Imre Friedman was the last name. I didn't realize that there was such a person as Imre. I did have a wonderful boyfriend who died. He was a kind, southern, gentle man. They come in the dark. They pound on the door. They yell. Does my father let them in, or do they force their way into our apartment? Are they German soldiers or Nilash? I can't make sense out of the noises that startle me from sleep. My mouth still tastes of Seder wine. These soldiers storm into the bedroom, announcing we are being moved from our home and resettled somewhere else. We're allowed one suitcase for all four of us. I can't seem to find my legs to get off the cot where I sleep at the foot of my parents' bed, but my mother is instantly in motion. Dr. Eager and her family are taken by cattle car, not knowing the horrors that lie ahead of them. We were told that we're going to Hungary to work. We didn't know that we're going to a place called Auschwitz. It was here, in this very moment, where her mother left her with a piece of advice Dr. Eager has never forgotten. My mother told me, and I quote, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put in your mind. And that is what was ringing in my ear. And I considered it my duty to do what I did. It was that very conversation between Dr. Eager and her mother that inspired her to write her first book, The Choice. And in fact, she has come back to those words again and again throughout her life. It was a way to keep hope alive through the hell of Auschwitz, 
and the source of healing over 20 years later when she began to process her traumas. I felt so alone. Because I asked in Auschwitz, does anyone know that I'm here? What was the answer? The answer is that my curiosity was very helpful. My curiosity wanted to know what's going to happen next. And next is a very good, good word. And I said to myself, if I survive today, then tomorrow I'll be free. Tomorrow was a very important word in my vocabulary in Auschwitz. Did you give yourself a timeline to think about how soon tomorrow would be, or it was always just the thing that kept you going? It was really one day at a time because there was another girl there from Yugoslavia, and she loved her country, and I loved my country. And I've talked about Hungary and all the wonderful ways that Hungarians live and eat. And and she told me that we'll be liberated by Christmas. And Christmas came and went, and the following day she died. So I think she was my best teacher, telling me not to set any dates because we don't know what's going to happen next. No one could have expected or known the horrors of Auschwitz. And from the moment she arrived, they did not end. The human imagination still struggles to comprehend what was done here. Auschwitz, where humanity comes face to face with its ultimate capacity for evil. 1.1 million people died here. More than the total of British and American losses in the whole of the Second World War. They took us to this camp. There were barracks, belly with bricks, no windows. There were about six, seven, eight to ten people sleeping, one dirty, filthy blanket. Machine guns pointing down. And the wires were so high. And they said in German, Arbeit macht frei. Work make the life free. Auschwitz was hell. Auschwitz really was hell. I didn't talk enough about Dr. Mengele. We had to separate everybody over 40, everybody under 14, and they automatically went to the gas chamber. And that's all I would like to tell, because then I begin to cry, and I don't think you are ready for that. And uh, I just want to tell you that being alive at 95, it's a miracle to me, and I appreciate every moment. Since she's not able to tell us the story, I wanted you to hear it in her own words. Here are some excerpts from her book, The Choice, about her frankly unbelievable interaction with Dr. Joseph Mengele. Dr. Mengele, we learn. He is a refined killer and a lover of the arts. He trawls among the barracks in the evenings, searching for talented inmates to entertain him. He walks in tonight with his entourage of assistants and casts his gaze like a net over the new arrivals with our baggy dresses and our hastily shorn hair. We stand still, back to the wooden bunks that edge the room. He examines us. Magda ever so subtly grazes my hand with hers. 
Dr. Mengele barks out a question, and before I know what's happening, the girls standing nearest me, who know I trained as a ballerina and gymnast back in Casa, push me forward, closer to the angel of death. He studies me. I don't know where to put my eyes. I stare straight ahead at the open door. Little dancer, Dr. Mengele says. Dance for me. If I miss a step, if I do anything to displease him, it could be me. I dance, I dance, I am dancing in hell. I can't bear to see the executioner as he decides our fates. I close my eyes. I focus on my routine, on my years of training. Auschwitz was unrelenting, but she held tight to what her mother had told her that day in the cattle car. She had the strength of her mind. It wasn't until December of 1944, six months after she entered, that she left Auschwitz, but she was still far from free. We were put on a train so we can carry ammunition for the Nazis. Still, despite her, her sister Magda and so many others being atop the train, the British still bombed the train. In the chaos of it all, Dr. Eager and her sister managed to survive. But still, they were not free, and her and her sister's struggle to stay alive continued. It wasn't until May 4, 1945, when a young American soldier noticed her hand moving slightly amongst a number of dead bodies that she was saved from the brink of death. You go up step, all I see is dead bodies, and, and I, I, I say to myself, here I'm going to die. And I survived the death march, which was from... Mauthausen to Gunskirchen. As the Americans came and the Russians, we were evacuated, evacuated, and that's how I ended up in Mauthausen, Austria. People going through the gate and coming back. I remember that clearly, how freedom was there, and then we didn't know what to do with the freedom. After the war, Dr. Eager moved to Czechoslovakia, where she met Bella, the man she would marry. She lived a lifetime in just those few years between the war ending and moving to the United States in 1949. She had her first child, Marianne, who was severely sick, and she had to go to great lengths to get medicine under communist rule. Bella was later arrested and Dr. Eager helped him escape from prison. Feeling the pressures of communist rule, they immigrated, but not without great difficulty and a strong sense of guilt. I smuggled my husband out, and that's how we came to America, penniless. When you thought about coming to the U.S., when you thought about coming to America, what did you know about America at that time? Like, What were you thinking about that you could achieve by being in the U.S.? Even before coming to America, I was told that, uh, that there is going to be democracy waiting for me. There was no democracy. So I joined the Women of Color. I ended up with Martin Luther 
king, and I remember the hug also, but I remember that in America people were practicing prejudice. ridiculous thing that has ever happened. And are just as free as we are. They have the same opportunity. The power, but the social position, you know? Look, I know what you're after, man, and so do you. Look, I mean, if you really want me to say it, I will. It's prejudice. That's what it is. We are not about to turn around. Yes, sir. We are on the move now. Yes, sir. Yes, we are on the move, and no wave of racism can stop us. Yes, sir. Prejudice followed Dr. Eager to America with an encounter with the patient who was part of the David Koresh movement. It was the us and them mentality. And I actually had a white supremacy person in my office who was a member of the David Koresh in Texas, and he told me, the first thing he will do is kill all the Jews. Did that remind you of prejudice that you had seen? Yes. I don't know the word happy. I don't know who is happy. I'm cheerful as well as I can. Do you think that other people feel happiness that you can't? I think I like to be a compassionate listener. I like to listen and repeat what I hear so I know that we are on the same page. So when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, I think it has to do with me looking at the situation from a different perspective. Do other people feel happiness? um, I don't know. I usually talk about that I went to have steak at Ruth's Steakhouse, and I noticed that I was walking on cobblestones. It triggered the time when children were spitting at us as we were walking through Germany and called us uh, dogs and many bad words. And I felt so sorry for the children that they were taught to hate me. Despite her optimism, it took years for Dr. Eager to fully process her trauma. She wrote in an essay in The Atlantic, For decades, I never spoke of the death camps, never told anyone, including my children, especially my children, that I was a survivor. But it was her daughter, Marianne, who had gone on to become a child psychologist who inspired her to pursue psychology at the University of Texas, El Paso. I was 40 when my supervisor told me to go get a PhD. And I looked at him and I said, by the time I get a PhD, I'll be 50. And he said, you'll be 50 anyway. And I think that's the best thing. You know, the chronological age is going to happen. It's what you do with it, not what happens. That is incredible advice. I feel like a lot of people who listen to this show aren't 50 yet and are still feeling like the first part of how they plan their life to go, you know, maybe it's 
the career path they went on, maybe it's the way they thought their family was going to look is kind of sunsetting and they're not sure like they have enough time, I guess, to rethink it. But that's, it's an incredible perspective. To me, every moment is precious. And we don't seem to appreciate what we have until we lose it. So freedom is a big word. And the second F word is freedom from the prison that we put in our minds. And the key is in your pocket. During our interview, Dr. Eager recalled a specific moment where the grief, guilt, sorrow, and everything in between that she had repressed for so many years bubbled to the surface. So I remember that my granddaughter asked me to buy her a pretty dress so she could go to the dance. And I did that. And I came home out of the blue. I was crying and I didn't understand what is going on with me. But then I came to the realization that I didn't cry because I bought a beautiful dress for my granddaughter. I cried because I never went to a dance. So I think that's very important that it's okay to grieve and feel and heal. You can't heal what you don't feel. The opposite of depression is expression. What comes out of your body will not make you ill. What stays in there does. A trained clinical psychologist, she's still practicing at the age of 95 and helping her patients heal through their traumatic experiences. I don't treat people as they are. I treat them as if they were, but they are capable of becoming. So I don't treat a bum like a bum. I treat them as a a wonderful, knowledgeable human being, and they rise to the occasion. We have the body, we have the blood that we cannot change, we have the environment, but I like the third, how you respond to the other two. Because what comes out of your body doesn't make you ill, what stays in there. So share your secrets. I do the talking that brings out feelings in people that you cannot talk about it or medicate it, but to feel the feelings. There's a lot of crying, which is very healthy, because what comes out of your body doesn't make you ill. What stays in there does. And I think that's very important to share your feelings. Dr. Eager makes her patients face themselves, to truly feel, to walk through the pain, the suffering, so they can get to the other side. This is the exact exercise that she did with herself at the age of 63 when she returned to Auschwitz to, as she says, look the lion in the face. I went to school, I went to school, I went to school and made me realize that I cannot take them further than I have gone myself. And that's when I decided to go back to Auschwitz. Look at the lion in her face. Do you remember what you felt when you went back? I cried a lot. Cried because I missed my mother. I missed the time 
that I could talk to my mother as two women, two mothers. I never forget what happened. I will never overcome, but I came to terms with it. I call it my cherished wound because part of me was left in Auschwitz, but not the better part, not the bigger part. I've read in your book that part of why you hadn't, or I guess a big part of why you hadn't shared about your experience with your children for many, many years is that you wanted to protect them. It sounds like you might have a different perspective now. Well, at the time, I did what I thought to be a Yankee Doodle Dandy and not to talk to my children about the past. Today, I would think very differently, but I'm sure that my children forgave me that at the time I did the best I knew how to do uh, with the information that I had. I certainly would change it today. Again, she wrote in The Atlantic, I'd thought my silence about the past would be a buffer for my children. Yet, in hiding from the past, I wasn't free of it. You had spent many years after you came to the U.S. not talking about the fact that you were a survivor. What changed that for you? I had my secret, and then the secret had me. So when I had two paraplegics, and one of them was in a fetal position, blaming, 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 you name it, you blame people, God, country. Conversely, the other one said to me, you know, hey, doc, and I was wearing a white coat. It's a Dr. Eager, Department of Psychiatry. He said to me, hey, God, God gave me a second chance in life, and I'm in a wheelchair. That means I can reach for my children much closer, I can reach for the flowers. And and I felt like a biggest imposter because here I was with two paraplegics and I couldn't take them further than I have gone myself. So I want to thank those two wonderful GIs who guided me to go back to Auschwitz. And that's the work I do today. Yuri. Visit the places where you were, you relive that experience, and then you revise your life. How do you manage withholding judgment as you're listening to patients, to people talking to you, when something that may really be affecting them seems kind of minor compared to what you've been through? I think it's a recognizable that suffering makes you stronger. We can use the bad and turn it into good. So it's not comparable. Suffering is part of life. At 95, I'm very, very much thinking before I say anything. Is it important? Is it necessary? And most of all, Is it kind? I think we can empower each other with our differences. That you can be you and I can be my, 
me, but together we're going to be much stronger. And that I learned in Auschwitz, that all we had was each other there, and all we have is each other now. Considering that you really hadn't shared for so many years, how do you feel about sharing your story with us now? Anything that comes out of my body, I feel that uh, I owe it to my mom to let people know what happens when good people do bad things. Just looking for the light wherever I am. It's called faith. Not believe. People say, believe, believe me. I have faith that uh, people are basically good. And I learned that from Anne Frank. She said, as I look outside, people are fighting and killing. I still believe, she said, that people are basically good. I certainly join her that we're not born evil, we're not born to hate, we're born with love and joy, and most of all, passion for life. (laughs) What legacy do you think you're leaving behind? That everything in life is temporary. There is no guarantee. There is no certainty. But there is probability. And that's mm-hmm. what I developed in Auschwitz, that they could put me in a gas chamber any minute. I had no control over that, but they could never, ever, ever own my spirit. And that's what I bring you today. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been such an honor and a pleasure to have you. You're a great interviewer. I love your dimples. Continue your wonderful work that you do. I honor you. Dr. Eager lives in California, where she has her clinical practice and holds a faculty appointment at the University of California, San Diego. She is a prolific speaker who has appeared on numerous television programs, including CNN and The Oprah Winfrey Show. She continues to use her story to spread a message of perseverance, courage, and compassion. She is the author of two New York Times bestsellers, The Choice and The Gift, both of which you can find wherever you get books. Happy Rosh Hashanah, Lashana Tova. Thanks for listening to this episode of She Pivots, where I talk with women about how their experiences and significant personal events led to their pivot and eventually their success. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at She Pivots the Podcast and leave a rating and comment if you enjoyed this episode to help others learn about it. A special thank you to our partner, Marie Claire, and the team that made this episode possible. Talk to you next week. Audio excerpts courtesy of Simon & Schuster Audio, read by Tova Felsha, from the audiobook The Choice by Dr. Edith Eager, published by Simon & Schuster Audio, a division of Simon & Schuster, Inc., were used with permission from Simon & Schuster. She Pivots is hosted by me, Emily Tisch-Sussman, produced by Emily Edda Voloshik, with sound editing and mixing from Nina Pollock. 
and research and planning from Christine Dickison and Hannah Cousins. I endorse T-Pivots. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.